Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Today we have the old team again. Not that old. Well, getting older by the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Older than we were at GodPod 87. That's... That is true. Yes, that's and because... certainly older than we were at Godpod number one. Because of the mm-hmm. arrow of time. Yeah. It's about... How long is it now we've been doing Godpod? Eight years? Nine years? Something like really? that? really? My goodness. Amazing. Time flies like an arrow, as Groucho Marx said. Fruit flies like a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You're full of these things, Michael. <laughs> Afraid so, yeah. That's right. Anyway, it's uh, Michael Lloyd. It is indeed, it's, I'm afraid. It's Jane Williams. It is, yeah. yeah. And it's myself, Graham Tomlin. So uh, thank you again to everyone who's sent in questions. And please continue to do so. And um, you can find the uh, email address on uh, our website, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was scrambling around to remember what the email address is, but um, I'm sure you'll find it there and you can text in your questions. Find it where exactly? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> so on our St. Paul's Theological Centre website, which is where you, sh- you go to find um, uh, Godpod downloads. But anyway, we've got a couple of questions today. And um, the first one is, uh, well, one of the things we try and do every now and again on these Godpods is to kind of tackle a particular heresy and try to tease out why it became a heresy. And uh, this is a question from um, uh, Paul Denny in New Zealand. And he says, greetings from New Zealand. So hi, Paul. Uh, in my job, I travel all over the South Island. I've made it through all 84 God pods in the last year or so. So unbeknown to you, you guys have circumnavigated the South Island of New Zealand several times now. So, you know, <laughs> there we are. So um, he calls it easy listening theology. A little book written by Michael Lloyd. Anyway, he says, you've touched on many different aspects of the Trinity. However, I have a specific question regarding oneness theology or Sabellianism or modalism? Can you please define this view and do you think it can fit within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity? So um, there is a uh, type of thinking about God and about the Trinity, which um, is often called modalism um, or uh, Sabellianism, coming from the teaching of Sabellius back in the early church. And so the question is, what is it and what's wrong with it? So, first of all, how would we define it? Anybody want to have a go to start off with? Uh, how we define it is basically that uh, the view of modalism is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, not three distinct uh, parts of God or beings of God or, or forms of God or persons of God, but are um, the, what, the one God showing himself, God's self, in uh, three different forms, three different ways, three different manners, or three different modes, three different modes indeed. Modalism. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, each one aligned to a particular period of history, but that's only in some forms of modalism. I often think it's it's a bit like you know I I am one person, but in some regards I'm a father, in some regards I'm a neighbour, uh, in some regards I'm a dean of a theological college. And uh, so I have these three modes in which I live, but actually I'm still one person. 
And modalism is a bit like that, or certain versions of it. It's like saying that, you know, God is one person, but he appears in these three modes, these three guises, or these three roles that he plays. Uh, and it's often an uh, illustration that is often used of the Trinity is, uh, well, you have th- lots of things that are three in one, like ice. You get it in solid form as, as ice, you get it in liquid form as water, you get it in gaseous form as, uh, as steam. Uh, so there you are, it's a kind of three in one thing. That's a very, very good picture of the modalist heresy. So <laughs> next time you hear that in a s- Trinity s- Sunday sermon, you can jump up and say, you because that would be very helpful. Yeah, that's right. And the, I suppose the, it seems um, quite a sensible uh, approach. It's much simpler um, than trying to say that God is both three and one, to say there's only one God and uh, we meet him in different roles, different modes at, at various points. Um, but when you start asking yourself why, um, why does God why would God choose to be met under different names if it's basically one God? Then it all begins to get a little bit um, hairy, doesn't it? You think, well, there isn't actually any logic to this position. It's just a way of trying to smooth over something that we find difficult. But there is no inherent logic to why God should choose to be known by Father as, by the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if actually there's only one God. He could have revealed himself as Father within the world as opposed to Son. Or simply God. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and and but but where Sibelius is right, it seems to me, is to be passionate about the oneness of God. I mean, what that's why he came up with this schema is because he was terrified of dividing God into three. So you have got three gods, and you um, have to. I think with all heresies, you have to. I think is it is that, is this this notion of you have to feel the power of ideas that history has judged erroneous. The, the reason we're talking about Sabellianism and modalism was because it was quite an attractive idea for a while. If it was completely out of the question, no one took it seriously, we'd have forgotten about it. No one would have ever thought it was a viable possibility. The only reason we're talking about it was because it was actually quite an attractive idea in some ways and captured something important about Christian faith, but not the whole of it, which is why... Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but, but heresy is heresy is always a sort of narrowing of the truth, isn't it? It's a kind of grasping part of it, but not the fullness, the breadth, the size, the grandeur of it. And the part of the truth that, that Sibelius gets hold of is the extraordinary advance in human thinking that belief in one God brings about. Uh, a unified field, field of knowledge um, uh, and not having a fragmented conception of reality, not having a the possibility of some gods being for you, some gods being against you, that creating a deep anxiety, never knowing who to placate and who not to placate. The fact that there's one god and he's for us. And the gods being against each other. God's going against each other. fighting and therefore yeah, it's, it's the a world very being based fra- in conflict and Fragmentary, violence. conflicted uh, and anxiety-inducing worldview. Uh, and and Sibelius rightly says, we're not going back there. We do not want that again. Part of the glory of um, Jewish and Christian faith has been precisely that it's rescued us from that. But, the, um, but then the issue is that we, um, uh, Sibelius and, and we, um, can only imagine unity as oneness. Uh, and um, the other extraordinary thing that Christian belief in the Trinity says is that unity can be dynamic and relational. Um, and and to try to 
um, put across this sort of glorious vision of something that is more one because it is you, it is three persons interrelating a oneness created out of dynamism and love that's that's the sort of that's the bit that Sibelius misses because he's trying to neaten it um sorry I'm talking about Sibelius so I'm talking about the composer but um. <laughs> Sibelius yes. Sibelius perhaps we should have a theological uh, yeah. kind of web form of um, word processing called Sibelius yeah. 7 for theologians just in case there are any Finns listening to us <laughs> Sibelius is not a heretic don't worry um, and like most heresies again it makes its point by underplaying or excising some of the biblical witness. So when you get the baptism of, of Jesus uh, and you hear the father say over the son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and you see the spirit resting over them like a dove, there you have the three interacting. Uh, or when you get the prayer life of Jesus, you see Jesus praying, you, the, the modes doesn't work because you've got an interrelation between the two modes uh, the, the, the analogy of three different roles doesn't work anymore it does seem to me is that, is that, that particular moment the, kind of the prayers of Jesus that modalism <coughs> really struggles you know, and does it make any sense at all for Jesus to pray to his father if actually Jesus is just another mode of, of God hmm. then you're talking about just, He's talking to himself. Yeah, talking to himself. It makes no sense at all. So you you can't really deal with that bit of biblical data where Jesus did does seem to address his his father. He is conscious of his father, and even on the cross is then conscious agonizingly of the absence of the father. That doesn't make any sense if if it's pure modalism. If there's just one God appearing in different modes. And and actually, what the Christian Church slowly uh, came to was a realization that no, we are not going back to. Um, three gods or multi-gods but the one god that we have come to believe in is more complex and rich and strange and interesting and wonderful than we had realized the one god in whom we believe is relational is is a relationship which then kind of meshes with a whole lot that we know in our own experience you know what are the most important things in our experience their their relationships why is that because the ultimate reality is a relationship and we are made in the image of that relational triune god uh, and therefore we are made for a relationship and made by relationship um, and suddenly it kind of makes sense of a whole bit of human because modalism ultimately says that, that that god is one and he is no more than one and therefore ultimate reality is unitary not relational and therefore, actually, the ultimate expression of reality is the individual, not the community, not the relationship, which, again, doesn't seem to chime with who we are as people. We sense that we are made for relationship, and that's, that makes sense if you think we are made in the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, because we reflect the very nature of the God in, whom, in whose image we are made. And that relationality is taken away by modalism, replaced with a rather kind of wooden, um, unresponsive, sort of unitary nature of God. And it would, it it could presumably also mean that um, uh, that our ultimate destiny is um, to be collapsed into the oneness of this one God in modalism. Uh, whereas, again, the 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 vision that the 
that Christianity offers us is that we will be we will become people who receive ourselves from each other, from this re- the relationships that we have with each other and uh, and above all with God. We will receive our personalities, ourselves, as gift from each other. But we won't disappear. Uh, um, we won't lose ourselves. Um, that actually uh, we will become more and more ourselves as we get closer and closer to each other and, and to God. In the same way that the three exactly. do not lose themselves in their unity and oneness. There's a wonderful sermon by Harry Williams in his book, The True Wilderness, I think, and maybe his book on the true resurrection, I'm not sure, but one or the other, um, where he says that two of the great human fears are isolation, loneliness on the one hand, and absorption, being smothered on losing your own identity in a conglomerate mass on the other, and that the Trinity is a bulwark against both those things. Because it, it's, it's a bulwark against isolation because of the utter oneness of the three persons of the Trinity. But it's a bulwark against absorption because of the threeness of the one God. Uh, and you do not lose who you are by being united to the others. There's a point also that um, I think it's Wolfhard Pannenberg makes in his book on Jesus, God and man. where He, he, he says, I think, that... that um, Modalism actually conceals rather than reveals God, because all you all you ever see is this these different modes, these faces of God, and you never get beyond the face. You never get beyond that to God Himself. You just see these present presentations of God, as it were. And um, that's really the other thing about a sort of dynamic Trinitarian theology. It talks about how, you know, when we pray, for example, we pray um, to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And uh, so there's a kind of movement that goes on in, in, in prayer that's journeying towards the Father in the Spirit through the Son. Um, and, uh, but guess, none of it unsupported by the being of God himself. In exactly, some way. That's right, yeah. And um, I think with modalism you lose that sense of, of, uh, of um, actually God himself revealing himself to us, are being invited into the very... Um, the presence of God himself, because all we're just given is these three modes, these three kind of external faces of God, as it were, um, nothing beyond that. And the three persons of the Trinity, um, th- what differentiates them is their relationship to each other, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and so on. But they they, they will one thing. So it isn't that the Father would like one thing and the Son would, would has a slightly different job and the Spirit has a slightly different... They, they, the, the purposes of God are fully found in encounter with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, and again, the sort of modalism sort of feeds into that idea that um, perhaps God wants to do one thing as the Spirit and something else as the Son and something else as, as though redemption is only brought about by... By the Son, and sanctification is only brought about by the Spirit, and um, creation uh, create, only by the Father. Yes. yes whereas, yes. actually, again, the biblical witness is that the whole of God is involved in the whole of God's activities in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I guess the question that came at the end of the um, email from Paul was: um, uh, Does this make fellowship between Trinitarian and Oneness proponents improbable? Or, in other words, you know, is it a, is it a heresy, or is it somehow can it be found within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity? And I guess historically the answer is no, it can't be found within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity because the the central perception of God in Christian theology is that He is 
Trinity. He is not just one, he is one in three. He is one, but within that oneness there is relationship within it, there's threeness. And therefore some collapsing that back into into a kind of unitary God, which Sabellianism or modalism does, isn't a, an adequate Christian uh, expression of, of, of the being and nature of God. I think there's your answer. I think so. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, Sibelius, not Sibelius. <laughs> He's um, <laughs> um, our heresy of the week. Anyway, uh, we move on to another question, which um, is kind of related a little bit, because I suppose when we think of of Jesus as as God, um, one of the things that we uh, perhaps struggle with is the idea that Jesus was crucified. That seems quite a difficult thing to think of God being crucified in that way. And this is a question that came from um, Denise Brinkworth in Oklahoma City in the uh, United States. And as she says, I've always heard the first century Jews were horrified with the idea of crucifixion and it was only associated with the worst of criminals. It would never have been thought of as relating to the spiritual life of an individual. So when Jesus told his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, what would the first listeners have thought of that statement? Saying makes sense to us in the light of the events that follow, but the people he was speaking to had no context in which they could place this statement. Um, So uh, does it seem unfair of Jesus to say something so provocative that no one could possibly understand and might even cause them to turn away? So uh, what what did Jesus mean by saying, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me? Is that almost too outrageous um, to be said? Uh, How do we understand that? How would his his first followers or listeners have understood that statement? I mean, it it is a shocking statement, isn't it? And I think the problem for those of us who who, who read the Gospels now is that we have lost the sense of how shocking it actually is um, because we've sort of made it all um, doctrinal and liturgical and wrapped it round in nice, neat um, uh, wrappings. Um, But... It, it's such a, an extraordinary thing to remember what it must have been like to go into the first time Christians were allowed to build churches and you go into a place and you expect to see the, the great triumphs of the emperor or something at, uh, up at the front where you're looking up and what you see is a crucified man. Um, and, and I think we really um, lose that sense of how shocking it is at our peril, um, which is why I really like this question. I think it really helps us to remember and there are whole religious traditions that have not been able to stomach the idea of even a good person being crucified, let alone a divine person being crucified. Um, Islam does not like the concept of uh, Jesus the prophet being crucified and, and has real difficulties with that. Um, and there, I guess, it's because the idea that something, you know, a bad end coming to a good person is is, is, is kind of what's being complained about. Um, but that's simply to underline Jane's point of the shocking nature of the, of the event, really. Because I guess people in the first century would have been, would have been aware, I mean, crucifixion was, was used as a kind of deterrent most of the time by the, by the Romans, either against people like you know, runaway slaves or... Or um, you know enemies of the Roman Empire. It was it was you know, rebels. Poor encourage les autres. It was this is what's going to happen to you if you rebel against the might of Rome. 
So it was a, a, a kind of political act. Um, this was Rome saying, this is what happens to you if you oppose us. And uh, and that in some ways sort of adds to the sense of shock, I think, that in, in, if, if Jesus did use that statement, you know, take up your cross and follow me, that would have been provocative not just to the people listening to him, but actually to the, the Roman authorities too, because it's almost as if he was saying, you actually need to embrace resistance to the system, um, to everything that that uh, is oppressive within first century Judaism. And so, um, but I think I think I still think it could have made sense to people because people were aware of and, and, and knew the image of the person who was called to carry their cross to their place of execution, and that was it. Um, and it was a deeply shocking image, but one that people would have understood, uh, or at least would have made people sit up and think, because you, you had that category of thinking: what, what this is what condemned criminals do. Um, I suppose that the bit that's particularly challenging for us is that that is an image of discipleship. You know, join a funeral march is not a great sort of um, evangelistic call. But I think it was uh, um, Terry Eagleton, who always has a very interesting relationship with Christianity. Um, I think he, he once said, you know, Christians who don't end up being arrested and persecuted by the authorities at the end of the day they've got some explaining to do Um, and you can kind of get the point in a way yes and it is a very powerful slightly offensive incredibly vivid way of talking about putting to death the things ourselves in so far as they exalt themselves to the highest place Uh, that tendency needs to be uh, suppressed in the way, as as effectively as Rome uh, does to 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 rebels um, we need to uh, not suppress our true natures but to suppress those bits of ourselves that would vault them into the place of God and of course Jesus's first followers would have been very familiar with what the might of Rome did to Jewish people um, they had been persecuted and martyred um, for their faith um, then as uh, as they continued to be um, uh, through so much of history. Um, so, uh, again, Jesus is not um, saying something uh, that would have been completely out of the experience of, of a lot of his hearers, but but he must, must have been heard as... Um, saying that uh, that he was not going to be the kind of Messiah who would um, ride in a triumphant army uh, to overthrow those Romans, that that that, that the the way in which he was going to be um, e- engaging with the world was was a, a way of uh, that would lead to um, confrontation, that would lead to death, that would lead to, that would lead to um, uh, real questioning of that the whole way in which that power structure. Uh, and accommodation with it actually works. And again, I think we need to hear that because we're trying always to make religion something comfortable and spiritual that isn't going to get us into any kind of trouble or confrontation with anything, but is simply going to make us feel better about ourselves and the world. Um, and there has to be more to it than that, if that yeah. is our Messiah, the one who was crucified. Which I think is the the point of Terry Eagleton's comment, which okay, is dramatic for effect, but... But there is a sense that if you know if your Christian faith 
costs you nothing. It's not really worth very much, which I think is part of what this this image says. Uh, you know, a, a faith that is worth little, the costs little is worth little, and um, and that, that seems to kind of ring true when you think of the great saints of the Christian faith. It usually has cost them a great deal. But not in the sense that they kind of wring their hands and say, "Oh dear, I wish I had that or that I've lost." Actually, the exchange is is every bit worth it. It's always the the greater pearl that one gives up the the lesser pearls for and trades them in for something of infinite worth and beauty and value. And um, and we don't encourage people, I hope, to go out and deliberately seek martyrdom. Uh, and Jesus didn't. Um, and, and deliberately seek it. He didn't run away from it, but um, he had a number of years in which um, he actually avoided um, being taken in and, and crucified. But it is the sense that there are worse things that can happen to a human being than giving up their life for their cause. They have some, um, uh, as um, you know, those people who stepped in to allow others to be saved from the gas chambers in, in Nazi Germany showed there are worse things and those worse things are usually to do with really betraying everything you believe in in order to keep yourself safe. Yeah. It's a way of, it seems to me, it's a picture of, of kind of resistance to everything that dehumanises and diminishes the life that God has given us to live. Including resistance to those forms of resistance that were on offer at the time, yep. which were violent ones, which yep, are exactly. dehumanizing yep. both of the person yep. they are violent to and of the person it, yeah, doing it's, the violence. It's Jesus' refusal to take up arms against Rome, but his willingness to go to the point of confrontation where it costs him his life. And that, that point of, sort of re- that non violent resistance to all that diminishes and harms the life that God has has given us and to, to, to other people, which means both resistance to whatever is within, inside me that diminishes my life and the life of others around me. So it's that kind of um, internal uh, struggle of um, last, the last God probably talked about, purgatory, purgation, that sense, that sense there, but also um, resistance to whatever we find in whatever context we're in that harms and, and uh, diminishes. Belittles and suppresses. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. And whatever that might cost and of course um beyond the crucifixion is the resurrection so what is clear is that this i mean if, if jesus had taken up arms against the roman empire then um there would simply have been a an, another bl- bloody battle and another uh, as this is th- these are the weapons that we human beings use and, and the jews of the first century used quite often during, during the various jewish revolts absolutely and as a matter of fact they change absolutely nothing whereas um jesus's willingness uh to um to tread the way of the cross leads to a complete change something that is completely outside um the weapons that we have at at our disposal it leads the, to new life yes the absorption of the violence rather than yeah. the ricocheting of it uh, and adding of impetus and momentum to it is is going to change the situation and <clears throat> i love the presentation in, in the book of revelation of this great army of martyrs yes. not an army of people who are going to inflict violence but those who are prepared like their lord um to to give it no force no momentum mm. to absorb it 
and return love. So, Denise, thank you very much for your question. It's mm. a really interesting and fascinating one that um, one can't really do justice to the crucifixion in quite the same way that no. um, that maybe you asked us to do. But we were, anyway, <laughs> we've had a go. But it's uh, an absolutely fascinating subject. As was the um, uh, the question uh, we looked at earlier on. Um, modalism. To do with modalism. So those are two topics for today, modalism and the crucifixion. So it's been a really good, good God pod to be part of. So thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jane. Yes, thoroughly and enjoyed it. It's goodbye from all of us, and uh, we will be back again soon. Bye. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.